From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jenny Doring. The pandemic has Americans lining up around the block at food banks. We have developed a system that is one of the most unfair, unequal in the world. And we can do better. We are the world's largest food exporter, and we produce so much food every day, vastly more than Americans need to eat, and yet we still have this hunger. Also, a novelist provokes us to ask hard questions as the climate changes. Fiction has the ability to help people emotionally access what's going on. We need science more than anything, but I think sometimes fiction can really support science as a way for people to put themselves deep in the heart of the problem and really feel what it's going to be like in this world if we don't do something. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The coronavirus pandemic has exposed a number of fault lines in America, from skepticism and outright rejection of proven science to the perilous economic state of many households. The long lines at food banks are testimony of growing food insecurity in the U.S., which was already at 10 percent of households before the pandemic, and more and more people without a job now struggle to feed their families. But the U.S. produces plenty of food, says Frances Moore LePay. She's the author of Diet for a Small Planet and founder of the Small Planet Institute and joins us now. Frankie, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you. I am delighted to be back to my favorite radio show. (laughs) Thank you. So here we are in the holiday season, and this past Thanksgiving, we saw pictures of people waiting four or five or more hours in line at food banks. What's going on here? It is tragic, Steve, and it is totally needless. I just saw the number four billion meals being distributed, and it is such a wake-up call for all of us that we have developed a system that is one of the most unfair, unequal in the world and we can do better. So this hunger that we're seeing exposed is something that is hidden most of the time. We are the world's largest food exporter, and we produce so much food every day, vastly more than Americans need to eat, and yet we still have this hunger. So Frankie, who are these people in line at the food banks? This isn't just the poorest of the poor, I gather. No, I think what it shows is that we have so many people living at the edge. There are something like over 40 million Americans who make no more than $15 an hour. We've seen these numbers like most families don't have enough savings to get them by any kind of emergency. And that need not be. We do have a safety net. It's not adequate. It's not nearly what it is in other industrial countries. There's so many who aren't you know, needing to take advantage of that safety net who still are so vulnerable to economic turndown. Yeah, so the folks, the poorest of the poor, presumably have gotten arranged with the food stamp program and such to take care of the bulk of their needs. But in this pandemic, there are a whole bunch of folks who never thought that they would have to go to a food bank, I guess, huh? Absolutely, absolutely. What are the psychological effects of hunger? Well, my core understanding of our society and in general people is that we, you know, we hear the expression, seeing is believing, but actually for human beings, believing is seeing. And the frame we've been taught, deliberately, very consciously taught, to see our economy as basically fair. 
free, 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 and fair. And from that premise, then, if you're not doing well, if you're really struggling, what does that say to you? That, well, you might feel shame because you're not succeeding. First of all, no market is free. Every market has rules. Unfortunately, in our market, we've come to accept something driven primarily by one rule, and that is do what brings highest return to those people already who are wealthy until we reach such income inequality that the last time I looked, we ranked in inequality of income between Argentina and Haiti, worse than more than 100 countries. So the family that's in line in their vehicle uh, for food at a food bank, and by the way, you see a lot of vehicles there that wouldn't be owned by the poorest of the poor. The psychological effect on them is essentially they've somehow failed. If they're hungry, they're doing something wrong. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I think, yes, I, you know, I know that it's not conscious for most of us, but I do think that there is this premise that if you try, you make it in our economy because we have this great system. We have this free market economy in which everybody can have a chance. In fact, I'd love to harken back to the decade in which I was born in the 40s. Franklin Roosevelt said that the liberty of democracy is not free if we tolerate this concentration of economic power. And he said that political rights alone can't make a democracy. We have to have economic rights and he wanted an economic bill of rights. He understood that the preamble to our constitution, it says that our purpose as a nation is to promote the general welfare, not just for everybody to free to do their own thing. And when FDR stepped up, we had then decades in which my generation from the 40s to the 70s, when my children were born, that generation, every income class its real family earnings doubled, but the poorest gained the most. But my children, who were born in the 70s, that generation, it's a different tale. The wealth just rushed to the top. So my point, Steve, is that experiencing this moment exposed so much right in our eyes by the COVID pandemic is something that in the past we have been able to avoid with real leadership that understood that we have to set fair rules to allow our political goals to be met for the general welfare. Now, not only are people food insecure in this country, but around the world there's a lot of food insecurity, yet you write that there is plenty of food for the global population. So as we seem to grow more food than ever before, what's going wrong? Well, yes, this is what woke me up. You know, this was my in my 20s when I said, why is there such hunger in the world? Because we were being told then that there just wasn't enough food, that we were overrunning the earth, too many people. So I checked it out. And you're absolutely right. There is more than enough food produced in the world today to make us all <laughs> have plenty, plenty. And you know what? Since I wrote my first book, Diet for Small Planet, we now, per person in the world, we have one-fifth more food than we did then produced for every person on Earth. And yet, we still have one in five of young children are stunted, stunted. And there's a lifelong impact from lack of, of good nutrition and poor water supplies. So we are still challenged from going to the roots of hunger, which 
is to me democracy itself. Well, let's talk about how food insecurity around the world, but especially as it's been revealed during the pandemic here in the United States, how does that affect the dignity of people? How does it affect our democracy to have so many people in line trying to get food from a food bank? Without a fair distribution of income, fair opportunity, it is almost impossible for me to imagine how we can have such inequality and have a genuine political democracy. Now, this last election, the billions that were spent were record spending. And most Americans are very against that. The vast majority of us, three quarters of us, see that money has too much influence in politics. And so that is the link there. We get it that highly concentrated wealth infects our democracy and therefore it doesn't serve the majority. So some people say food is love. What do the long lines at the food banks tell you about what's going on in families and in our society? It tells me that um, we've not been able fully to accept that when our Constitution calls us to promote the general welfare, that that's premised on the idea of love, that we all feel connected to one another, that we aren't participants. So let's listen to who we really are. Human beings need power, meaning, and connection, and let's use those needs to get at the roots of hunger. Francis Morlapay is author of Diet for a Small Planet and founder of the Small Planet Institute. Frankie, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Steve. A great pleasure. It's time now for a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News, that's EHN.org and DailyClimate.org, and he's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What you got for us this week? Well, hi, Jenny, and uh, Atlanta, Georgia is where we start because the former Catholic Archbishop of Atlanta, Wilton Gregory, then moved to Washington to be uh, Archbishop there, was just raised by the Pope to be Wilton Cardinal Gregory, the first U.S. African-American Cardinal. He's also one of the most active and vociferous Cardinals on climate change and on the Pope's encyclical of 2015, Laudato Si, on care for our common home, which was all about the environment. Well, Peter, that sounds like good news, and I I think you could say that doing nothing about climate change would be a cardinal sin. It would be a cardinal sin. It would be a pretty good pun. Congratulations, Jenny. And it would also be the past mode of inaction for the Church. Cardinal Gregory has also been very, very active in welcoming LGBTQ Catholics into the Church. He led the Church's zero-tolerance policy in response to sex abuse, which of course has plagued the Catholic Church for the last few decades. And in addition to climate change, he's been very much in line with the Pope's encyclical about using the power and scope of the Church to help clean up the earth. Hey, what else do you have for us this week? 
George is going to stay on our minds, Jenny, because of the bigger political issue of the day in the minds of many Americans uh, are the two Senate runoff elections coming up that uh, could decide whether the Republicans or Democrats control the Senate. There are 16 Superfund sites. They're threatened by extreme weather linked to climate change. Three particular sites, as listed by Inside Climate News, are along the coastline, along a beautiful stretch of coastline in southeast Georgia near the town of Brunswick. One of them is a former wood treatment site. The second one is a landfill for sewage treatment plants. The third one is a chemical factory. Near that site, bottlenose dolphins have been found to have high levels of toxic chemicals in their tissue. Near the landfill treatment site, there are shellfish found with five times the permissible level of toxic chemicals. They're in need of cleanup. They've been on the Superfund list for quite a while. The other sites in Georgia, none of them, by the way, real near Atlanta, where I am, but in other parts of the state, there are all manner of toxic facilities, coal ash sites from power plants, other factories. Atlanta and Georgia, I'm happy to say at least, are not as much of a mess as my ancestral home up in New Jersey. Well, that all sounds like multiple disasters waiting to happen, Peter. So what's in the history calendar this week? December 12th, 1980, Congress passed the Comprehensive Environmental Response Cleanup and Liability Act, also known by one of those horrible government acronyms, CERCLA. But CERCLA, of course, is even better known by its high school yearbook nickname, Superfund. So back to Superfund, there are over a thousand sites across the country that remain on the cleanup list. Well, gee, Peter, why are they still on the cleanup list decades later? Uh, For the most part, um, not much has happened at all in the last four years, but you could also argue that not that much has happened in the 40 years since Superfund came into being. Most of the delay is over litigation about whether the government pays for cleanup, whether the industries that polluted pay for the cleanup, or in some cases, industries that bought out the polluted sites pay for the cleanup. Bottom line is that it's literally a mess. Thank you, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Peter, we'll talk to you next time. Okay, Jenny, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Coming up, how scientific research is another victim of the pandemic. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jenny Doring. In 2013, the government in Ghana planned to build a 700-megawatt coal power plant in the coastal fishing community of Abawana. But for Ghanaian environmental activist Chibizi Ezekiel, the risk of a coal-fired power plant was too high. 
He had seen how coal had polluted other African communities and was worried it would worsen climate change. So Mr. Ezekiel organized a grassroots youth campaign and successfully convinced the government to drop coal and invest instead in renewable energy. For his work, Chibizi Ezekiel received this year's Goldman Environmental Prize for Africa. And he joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth, Chi. Thank you very much, Jenny, for this opportunity. So talking with other youth and thinking about climate change yourself, what really compels you to get involved in this? Like, why is climate change something that you really care about and, and you've worked so hard to address? When I got introduced to climate change in 2009, because it was basically a new concept to me, it was more about reading around it, hearing people's story. I was hearing about climate impact. But because I didn't get that physical experience on what it means to suffer from climate impact, I didn't really appreciate the magnitude of what climate change can do. Until I had a chance to visit one community, a fishing community in some part of Ghana, and where the sea you know, had actually submerged a whole community. So for me, that, that was when I started thinking that, wow, so this climate change is really serious. I mean, I thought that it was just something I was reading you know, on the internet. So that actually made me realize that, no, this is something happening in Ghana, not in any other part of Africa or the world, but close to my, in, in my country. So then that actually ignited you know, the passion to start the advocacy that we need to treat this as an issue of emergency and make sure that we try to fight you know, its impact until it becomes you know, extremely uh, devastating. Could you just describe for us this region where the Akumfi coal plant would have gone um, that you helped organize to stop. What's it like there? Yes, Ekofi is in the central region of Ghana. It is not a very developed area. Uh, people are still living in, in abject poverty with limited social amenities. So there are seven small, small communities within Ekofi. We actually knew that our task was a very big one. So we certainly had to be very strategic if we have to win this battle. So to begin with, we adopted what I want to call the submarine approach. In other words, we did a lot of underground work without coming out, without making noise. So we went to the community, Ekonfi, and spent about three or four days with the people in the community. We spoke to the chiefs, we spoke to the elders, the women groups, the youth groups, the fisher folks, to get their view of the coal plant. And fortunately for us, we, some of them, I mean, publicly, you know, or openly told us that they're not in support of the coal plant because of similar experiences they've had in, or they've had in, in other communities. So again, we're, we started mobilizing. I know that Ghana, it does actually enjoy one of the highest rates of access to electricity in sub-Saharan Africa at over 80% of its citizens having electricity, but there are these frequent supply shortages. So I can imagine how compelling the idea of a giant new coal plant would be to so many who are concerned about electricity. How does that kind of conversation play out in the campaign with you convincing decision makers and locals that, yes, electricity is important, but there's a better way? At that time, around 2015, Ghana was in a lot of energy crisis. The demand for power was more than government could supply. Indeed, companies were collapsing. Indeed, people were losing their jobs. I mean, we're not having constant energy supply. So at that time, government was under pressure to solve that problem. And we're also due for election in 2016. So every government automatically wouldn't want to lose. They really want to be voted back into office. So they felt that building a coal plant will solve the problem so people can trust them and still vote them in 2016. 
The argument we made was, now we are relying on South Africa for coal, uh, which means we don't have control over the source of the raw materials. So the issue of sustainability was not guaranteed. We cannot put our hope in that to create more problems for ourselves. So we said that, well, we thought that we, this, we have this sun, you know, these natural sources you know, in abundance. They are reliable, they are available, the sun keeps shining all the time, the wind keeps blowing all the time, the sea is always there. At least if you talk about sustainability, the renewable energy or clean energy is better, you know, as compared to putting our hope and our trust in coal, which has been imported from South Africa, which we don't have control over. So this way, I made a key argument we made in that regard. And you did, in fact, eventually convince Ghana's environment minister to halt the construction of the Ikumfi coal plant. What parts of your grassroots and, in fact, your submarine campaign do you think really convinced the environment minister that this wasn't a good idea? You know, campaigning or advocacy is not an issue of emotion or an issue of feelings. If you are fighting government, if you want to come out with a very stronger argument, because government needs solution, they want immediate solution. So if you're coming with an alternative, then you have to be more powerful than what government itself was thinking. So using a submarine approach, go low, learn more, do more research, do more engagement, get the right information. So by the time you come out, you know, you're speaking based on facts, based on evidence, and, the, and that becomes even a means to influence government to, to buy into your decision. I believe very strongly that our approach worked very well. We are a youth group. Uh, we don't have the resources. Uh, we don't have the muscle, you know, to wrestle with government for years or for months. We don't also have the money to go to court to challenge government. We don't have a lawyer, you know, we're talking about a grassroots movement, young people. So based on what we have with our limited resources, what can we do to achieve the impact or the objective that we, we, we anticipate? So by the time we came out publicly, I mean, it took us about five to six months to achieve our aim. Wow, that's that's actually a pretty quick turnaround in terms of campaigns. So congratulations on that success. So instead of the coal plant, to what extent are renewables like wind and solar energy being installed in the Akumfi region and helping bolster the energy supply? Yes. So even though the pace is quite slow, there has been some effort to develop renewable energy in Ghana. Specifically, I've not cited any solar plants or any wind plants being put up at the Akumfi. But uh, I'm aware that there are communities close to Ekonfi that have solar farm. Initially, it was 20 megawatt solar farm. And now we have an additional 20 megawatt solar farm by a Chinese company. So we have about 40 megawatt solar farm, you know, a place that is not too far from Ekonfi. But uh, what we are trying to promote is that if at the national grid, we are able to develop renewable energy, then government can even get power to supply to all Ghanaians, including those in Ekonfi. At a point, we got to know that Ghana has about 200 islands, which means that those communities are off-grid because it was quite expensive to send, to put up transmission lines all the way to those communities. So in those communities, they are putting up solar mini-grids. So those communities today, as I speak, have access to electricity. So increasingly, we are having some levels of adoption. So Chi, what are you focusing on now in your activism? What's on the horizon for you? We have formed what we call the Youth in Renewable Energy Movement Campaign. So there's a whole movement of young people on renewable energy, making all the advocacy work, all the campaign to support government's efforts on renewable energy. We are also running a Youth in Climate Action Campaign, where we are building the capacity of young people to participate in Ghana's national adaptation plan processes, as well as the development and now the review of our NDCs, you know, leading to the implementation. 
So that, that's what we are doing now, building our capacity to participate in the decision-making process so that eventually we can all collectively fight you know, the climate change that we all seek to do. Chibizi Ezekiel is a board member of 350.org and the Africa recipient of the 2020 Goldman Environmental Prize. Thank you so much, Chi. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Jenny. The coronavirus pandemic has affected nearly every aspect of life and society, including the ways in which some scientific research is conducted. A number of laboratories have had to shut down and funding has become more of a challenge. Oregon Public Broadcasting reporter Jess Burns has the story. During the early days of the pandemic, whether or not you had a backbone could have been the difference between life and death, at least if you were a lab animal. OSU would let you take care of fish during the shutdown, but invertebrates were not considered to be, I guess, important enough. Not being able to access her lab was a problem for Oregon State University researcher Suzanne Brander. She studies how microplastics and chemical pollutants affect sea life, including the lowly spineless mycid shrimp that plays a big role in the ocean food web. And so that's why we decided to move the mycid shrimp cultures home. And the best place to put them was my basement. There, she cared for them with her kids for several months. By summer, the shrimp were back home on the Corvallis campus, but things were not back to normal, and they still aren't. Fewer researchers can access the lab at the same time, and all the workstations have been spaced out. Although this might be a good thing if you work next to grad student Catherine Lasden, who counts microplastics in the dissolved intestinal tracts of Oregon rockfish. It smells bad, I'm warning you. But the real concern for Brander is money. Much of her lab's research, staffing and supplies, is funded by grants. It's hard because it's not as if you can ask a funding agency that's giving you a grant for more money. So you have to kind of stretch it out and make it work, even though you're missing a three or four month chunk of time. The grant money crunch is also being felt by Oregon Health and Science University's Nicole Bowles, who studies the effects of irregular sleep cycles on cardiac health in firefighters. She thinks money is especially of concern for early career scientists. As a young investigator, who's trying to build my research portfolio, every dollar really, really does count. She says senior researchers seem to be more secure. I've already seen it. I'm thinking back to a talk I went to in May and an established researcher, they they were able to like flourish during this time. It was like they seem to be writing a paper a week, you know, whereas I'm trying to figure out like, how am I going to make it work? While concerns over funding are widespread, in some cases, the interruption of the research itself is the most acute loss. Every summer, the nonprofit Klamath Bird Observatory monitors migratory bird populations in rural southern Oregon, using a crew of budding scientists from all over the world. Director John Alexander says when the pandemic hit, they realized something very quickly. We cannot be vectors into rural communities where we do this work. The observatory told their crew to stay home. And consequently, for the first time in 25 years, their bird counts didn't happen. It's a huge setback when you have these long-term data sets to miss a year of data. Science director Jamie Stevens says the stakes are high. A recent study found that the U.S. and Canada have lost 3 billion birds in the past 50 years, and the observatory's long-term data provide the backbone of policy changes that could help reverse the trend. It's just incredibly urgent right now. So of all the things that got put on pause for a year, 
It's just all getting a little behind. When we don't have time to get behind, we need to be taking actions like a decade ago. Scientists and the institutions they work for are figuring out how to push their research forward in a pandemic world. Plastics researcher Brander says she feels like she's successfully ridden out the first wave. For now, we're, we're okay. It's not great, but we can manage. But with a record surge in cases, she's concerned about the future. I'm terrified about what things are going to look like after Thanksgiving, especially seeing and hearing about the numbers of people who are planning on still traveling or having family from out of town. So far, Oregon State is allowing the labs to remain open. But if case counts get much higher, Brander fears another complete shutdown of her lab could be coming. I'm Jess Burns reporting. Her story comes to us courtesy of Oregon Public Broadcasting. Australia is full of wonderful and strange animals. From saltwater crocodiles and turtles that breathe through their behinds to the duck-billed platypus, a mammal that lays eggs. For all its oddities, the island country isn't home to any native big cats. But rumors of sightings have circulated since the 1800s, and living on Earth's explorer-in-residence, Mark Sethlander, recently had a close encounter of his own. Driving north on the Stewart Highway, two lanes straight as an arrow, the tarmac belongs to the road trains. Three and four trailers, 120 metric tons each one, Cruising at a 130 clicks cab the size of a locomotive, they are of a speed and configuration, making it impossible for a road train to turn. Valerie and me, we give road trains the full width of the road, pulling halfway onto the dirt shoulder as soon as we spot them, deliberately sending up a cloud of dust to let them know. They blare their horns and wave, and we wave back, the shockwave rattling the camper van as they push on through. The sun is careening towards the horizon, and the distant mountains still no closer than they were this morning in this vast and timeless place. Nothing, not even a road train, will travel here in the dark, cow country, unfenced. The cows wander out into the middle of the highway, At night, you won't see them. We start looking for a turnout. Soon enough, we find our camping place, a clearing beside the road. We lay back, look up. An unfamiliar sky unfolds, the Southern Cross with its blazing stars, the one thing unmistakable. In the morning, up with the sun, we push on. Finally, stopping for lunch, at the marker for the Tropic of Capricorn, just to say we did, and take pictures just to prove it, and on our way again. Not ten minutes after, Valerie in a quiet voice says, Look. Unmistakable as that southern cross, a black panther crossing the road. He glances at us, barely, as if we are a familiar sight. Doesn't run, doesn't grant us a second look. And in his casual, cat-like cadence, slips into the underbrush and turns, parallel to the road for a few dozen meters more, and disappears. We have seen a thing of legend. 
rumored, unconfirmed, object of conjecture, of ridicule, and yet all that a panther is rare to the point of disbelief, he treated us like something unremarkable and of no importance. Things come, things go, like road trains and dust. Black panthers remain. To them, we in our age of industrial scale and speed, we are the creatures of myth, the ones who do not exist, or if we do, in their timeless view, a passing fancy. That's Living on Earth's Explorer in Residence, Mark Seth Lender. Coming up, a dystopian novel with a message of hope for vanishing species. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Charlotte McConaughey has written a debut novel, Migrations that is attracting a lot of attention for its brilliant writing and core topic, climate disruption. The novel is set in a future in which many of the animals we know and love, like polar bears and the great apes, are extinct, and the oceans are running out of fish. Yet the Arctic tern, a bird known for having the world's longest migration, remains. In years yet to come, one woman follows what might be the very last migration of Arctic terns from pole to pole. But this work of fiction is about a voyage of discovery far beyond the birds. Author Charlotte McConaughey joins me now from her home in Australia. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Our pleasure. So tell me, where did the idea for this novel come from? Well, it's tricky for me to pinpoint it because it was one of those things that came in a lot of different pieces. It was quite fragmented, but I wanted to engage with my kind of concern around the climate crisis, but I didn't know how because it felt just far too big. So I sort of parked that notion and I went traveling and I wanted to explore the UK, which is where my ancestors are from. And I started noticing all the beautiful birds, the migrating birds over there, particularly the grey lag geese, which I learnt about while I was in Iceland. And I just became really fascinated with where they must be flying and these incredible journeys they were going on. And I started thinking about the idea that wouldn't it be amazing if we could follow them and, and experience those, those migrations with them. So I think that's where that initial spark of an idea of this woman who's following the last migration of the Arctic tern. So tell me, how to, I mean, of all the animals on, on this planet, why the Arctic tern? Well, I didn't know initially which bird she would be following. Um, so I, did, I was doing a lot of research into a lot of different birds. And the moment I came across the Arctic tern, I knew it was the one. I fell in love with it. <laughs> it has the longest migration of any animal in the world from the Arctic to the Antarctic and then back again within a year. And because it lives for about 30 years, over the course of its lifespan, it will fly the equivalent distance of to the moon and back three times, which I just thought was absolutely beautiful and, and kind of amazing that the, such tiny creatures could go so far for survival and we're making this journey more difficult for them every year. So they sort of became a metaphor for courage the courage that Franny would need to, to take on her journey 
And I think she takes a lot of heart from them. If they can do it, then she can too. So recently, we've been learning quite a lot about the emotional toll that climate anxiety and and climate grief have for so many of us. How do you think this affects Franny, the protagonist of your novel? Quite severely, I think. One of the reasons that I wanted her to be such a migratory creature herself and such a wild creature and so similar to the animals that she loves is because I wanted her to have a really deep connection to the natural world, which would allow her to be a great mouthpiece for her to experience the loss of this wildlife and the natural world that's disappearing piece by piece, just as we're losing it. I think she suffers that grief perhaps more intensely than the rest of us do, which is why she's so driven to do something about it. Yeah, she's willing to risk her life to follow this passion. Yeah, that's right. One might say, in some respects, climate change is perhaps changing everything. I mean, it just has so many impacts on the way that we're living now. But your character, Franny, is looking at the human aspects on the climate largely through their effects on animals. So what is it, do you think, about animals that so resonates with Franny? I think I think because she grew up without a family, she made a family of the wild creatures around her and the natural spaces. So they became a kind of home for her when she didn't have a normal home. And they became her loved ones when she didn't have anyone else to cling to. And so I think a big part of her is bound to these creatures. And I think also one of the things that originally was an inspiration for me was growing up, I really loved Celtic mythology and the myth of the Selkie, which is the story of seals that can shed their seal skin and become humans. And they can, the tragedy of the Selkie is that they can fall in love and get married and have children, but they'll always be bound to the ocean. And this is something that kind of plays into Franny and her character. She says at one point in the book, it's not fair to be a creature who is able to love but unable to stay. And so I think that that is also part of her creatureliness and this idea that she's not she doesn't subscribe to a lot of societal values. She has no ambition. She doesn't want wealth. She is really just living in the moment um, in a way that I think we all would love to be able to. Mm. And she loves water, or she certainly spends a lot of time in and around and above water. Yeah, she absolutely does. And I think that's another element of that Selkie myth coming in. I've always loved the ocean. There's something very mysterious and frightening and wonderful about it. I guess it's the most important part of our planet, really, because we're the only planet that has ocean, which makes it a habitable planet for us. So there's something kind of immense and important about the ocean. I hate the idea of it being pillaged for our benefit. And of course, Franny's quite concerned about, uh, shall we say, overfishing? She is, absolutely. Yeah. It's a real problem for us. And in the world of the book, it's even more of a problem. And so there's that terrible conflict for her that she has to talk her way onto a fishing boat. And it's the only way that she's going to be able to fulfill her journey. But it sort of (laughs) really gets under her skin. She hates it because she's so anti 
fishing, but I think that's one of the things that this book is about. It's about overcoming our judgment of the other side of this. There's this big schism in the world, I think, between conservation and fishing and farming. And and one of the things that this book, I think, is trying to say is that we need to be able to communicate and not judge each other in order to understand each other and actually try to find ways to support each other to move beyond the employment the way it is now and make it sustainable for the future. In other words, we're all in this thing together. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. So I guess it was Camus who said, if you want to be a philosopher, write novels. Maybe you took that to heart because at one point you start, you have this discussion about whether people should work to save, quote, important animals, the ones that benefit societies versus working to save everything that seems to be slipping away from our ecosystem. And Franny's not happy that people would even think about making this choice. I think she says, and let me quote here, it's page 209, what of the animals that exist purely to exist because millions of years of evolution have carved them into miraculous being? So talk to me about this discussion and and why you decided to include it in this book. Yeah, I think this really strikes to the heart of what the book is about, actually. Um, It really upset me to think about the fact that in a dire future, we would only be focused on saving the animals that provide us with some measure of survival, the ones who offer us something. So at this conservation base in the book, they're putting most of their resources into saving the pollinators because they're integral to our food sources. But yeah, as you read, Franny Voice is something that I found really tragic myself and I, I struggle I know that there's practicalities that need to be taken into account, but it seems immensely unfair, the tragedy of leaving all the rest of the animals to go extinct. You know, it's not their fault that they can't survive, it's our fault. And I think I realised that by writing this book, I was trying to remove humans from the centre of all things, trying to point out that we're not the only creatures on this planet that have a right to be here and that deserve survival and we shouldn't be behaving as though we are. I think in a way it's a love letter to animals, not because of what they offer us, but just because they're beautiful in their own right and we would have a much poorer world without them. Biodiversity is key, but on a purely emotional level, we will have such immense loss if we let go of the animals. Makes me wonder if they could get together and and let us go, if they'd make that choice. I think they would, if they could. (laughs) Although they're a lot more compassionate than we are, I think. (laughs) (laughs) In that same section of your story, you you also have a scientist saying that birds should be contained and and stopped from migrating as a a way to save them. And yet uh, the husband of your main character here claims that migration is, well, it's just part of being a bird. Talk to us about these dueling ideas and, and how this discussion made it into the book. Yeah, well, this was me trying to put myself in the headspace of the scientists and conservationists who are having to figure out how to save these animals and really trying to imagine what we need to be doing. What do you do if you have an animal that is instinct-bound to go on this epic migration in order to find food and breeding grounds, but the journey itself isn't survivable for them? Do you contain them to feed them and keep them alive? Do you force them to adapt? Or 
Is our involvement in their existence part of the problem that got us into this mess in the first place? Are we having too much of an impact on them and should we just leave them alone? I don't really know what the answer is and I think it's clear in the book because there's this ongoing discussion. I do think it's crucial for us to save critically endangered animals from the planet that we made too hard for them. You know, that's the least we can do. But there's something that sits very wrong for me in trying to change their fundamental natures and the instincts that have led them through those millions of years of evolution. I find it heartbreaking thinking of caging birds. I don't imagine you think much of zoos then. I struggle with zoos. I don't like them. I like it when they use their resources for conservation efforts, but I don't visit them because I find it too sad. So the title of your book is Migrations. Mm-hmm. So what does the theme of migration mean for you in writing this book? Well, it was initially just about the birds. As I said, I was traveling around the UK and looking for a sense of roots and history and belonging, and I became fascinated with the gorgeous birds that I could see. I think I was fascinated with the idea of movement for survival and what that might mean for humans, because it often means the same for humans. But I I wanted to explore a character who had a kind of driving force inside her, an instinct like the birds, for movement as survival. And yet it was more of an emotional survival than a physical one. And I knew that pretty quickly the kind of woman who would follow these birds would have to be a fairly special person. Um, She started to form into this wild creature in my mind who never stops moving, always roaming, and this impacts her relationships quite badly, but it's a compulsion of sorts like it is for the animals. She's searching for where she belongs. And I guess that kind of started bringing up the idea of people who don't know where they belong, and that can certainly be true of settler societies and migrant families. They can often feel a bit rootless, I think. Franny is kind of straddling these two worlds, one that belongs to the people who stayed and are bound to their homes, and then one that belongs to the people who left and perhaps maybe lost that sense of home. I think that's the complexity of migration for people. Now, your story has a lot of destruction, a lot of loneliness, and uh, the impact of human activities is apparent on many of the pages of this book, yet somehow it's fair to come away from it with a sense of hope. So talk to me about hope and and how is it that you're able to, to cast a spell of hope in such a dark tale as this one? Mm. It wasn't easy, to be honest. I'm an optimist at heart. I couldn't live if I didn't think there was hope, but all joy in life would be gone for me. But writing this was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. It took me to some very dark places and I often felt lost in them. So I would stop and I'd go outside and I think even without realising it, I'd be taking nourishment from the little pieces of the natural world around me that I could find, the birds that I spotted, walking in trees, even if there are only a few. I'm city-bound, so it was not always easy to find these little pockets of wildness, but you can do it if you're looking for them. And I I read a lot of Mary Oliver poetry, which is all about our connection to nature and how it can feed our souls, and that would kind of inspire me to look around and, and see the truth of the fact that there's 
so much we haven't yet lost. That's what kept me going. I think we're saturated by bad news these days, comes at us from every angle, and it's easy to become apathetic or to give up. But now is not the time to give up. It's the opposite. It's the time to fight. And it was really important to me that this book be about hope more than anything because hope is energizing. It leads to action. And that's what we really need. I think in some ways the book is a battle cry and it's reminding myself of that is how I kept going because I was able to see that there's hope everywhere. It's in the kindness and the generosity that we show each other every day. That's the real stuff. And I think that's what we need to be feeding. Charlotte McConaughey is the author of the novel Migrations. Charlotte, thanks so much for taking time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely to chat. From the epic migration of the Arctic Turn, we take a look now at a far less ambitious migrant, the hoopoe, which travels between Britain in the summer and northern Africa in the winter. Bird Notes' Michael Stein has more about the bird as a cultural icon. These soft, modest hoots signal a bird so distinctive, so fabled, that it's hard to know where to begin its story. So, let's start with the bird's name. Hoopoe, or hoopo, modeled on its song. Its scientific title, too, comes from those mellow hoots. Upupa epops. Hoopoes are also the only extant members of a unique family of birds, Upupidae. And it's a crazy-looking bird, J-sized with a long bill like a sandpiper's. The hoopoe's head and breast are buffy pink, with a crest it can raise like an Indian headdress. It flies on rounded, boldly zebra-striped wings, fluttering unevenly like a giant butterfly. It's a bird so peculiar and found through much of the old world that it's caught the eye of humans for eons. The hoopoe figures in mythologies of Arabic, Greek, Persian, Egyptian, and other cultures. But the bird's fame hasn't gone to its head. In all its oddity, the humble hoopoe carries on with a minimum of fuss, nesting in tree cavities in Europe and Asia, migrating to the warmth of Africa in winter. I'm Michael Stein. For pictures of the unusual hoopoe, migrate on over to the Living on Earth website, loe.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Jay Feinstein, Leah Jablow, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Aaron Mock, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Casey Truesdan, Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. Special thanks this week to Destination Wildlife. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth. And find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.